0: We are living on borrowed time. We're spending nearly 20% of our money, our GDP, on healthcare, and much of it is on chronic care, and we're, we're handling it all wrong. So I, I really stepped back and thought to myself, you know, I can apply my experience uh, building consumer platforms and, and great consumer products and apply it to healthcare.
1: This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health.
2: An accomplished investment banker who became an accomplished executive at leading tech companies, including eBay and Google, Stephanie Tolinius, has now set her sights on an even more difficult challenge as CEO of Vita Health, improving the health of the chronically ill with evidence-based coaching. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And we're exceptionally excited that today's show is sponsored by a new sponsor, Idea Pharma. Who've always impressed me with their original and independent thinking? Idea Pharma, the industry's leading path to market strategy practice, bringing more great medicines to patients. You can find them at www.ideapharmaoneword.com. And if you see Mike Ray, who you should definitely check out on Twitter at Idea Pharma, please say thanks. So, Lisa. Yes, David. Our guest today uh, was and is an experienced tech executive who is drawn to healthcare. Yep. My sense is that a few years ago, we might have been pretty wary about tech folks bringing their talents to health, but now we're seeing this happen not only more often, but you know, seemingly more successfully. Think about folks like Owen Tripp, for example, of Grand right. Rounds. Where are you on this right now?
1: Well, you know, I, I don't think I ever believed that it was a blanket statement that healthcare people couldn't. You know, or tech people couldn't do well in healthcare. I think it's more an issue of that there's a lot of tech people traditionally, and I think our current guest is not one of them, who believe that the things they learned in tech could be applied wholesale to healthcare without a clear understanding of some of the limitations and crazy payment structures and all of the other regulatory issues and the like that are somewhat, you know, binding in, <laughs> in the healthcare world at least today. Um, and that you can just fix that, you know, and I think what what you're finding is the people that come from tech to healthcare who are successful are those who understand there is nuance in every industry that needs to be understood and combines... Kind of the best of both worlds,
2: and that's some of that domain expertise that Daphne Kohler talked about. Right. So, and I think that we're going to hear a lot about that. Those exact points. So, in welcoming Stephanie, I should start by saying that we're basic. Although we're basically neighbors, it took another podcast, Healthy Dose, which we love, to introduce us. I heard Stephanie on a recent, really incredibly amazing podcast that they did with her, um, and was just blown away. Only later did I discover that not only are we both out here in the Bay Area, but our kids have done the same theater program, and and some of our kids even attend the same school. So, so welcome, neighbor.
0: <laughs> Great to be here this morning.
2: <laughs> All right. So let's start at the beginning. Um, you, um, you grew up in Ohio with the daughter of an entrepreneur father and an art history teacher mother, um, who, um, you, who were both really influential, you said, in how you saw the world. And said your, your, You said your mom taught you you could do anything, and your dad encouraged you to work, not worry. I never thought it was one or the other. Can you <laughs> can you can you really train yourself to do
1: this? And if so, please tell us specifically how.
0: <laughs> he uh, he always used to say, "Stephanie, you're mixing up your W's. Uh, don't worry about it. Just work. Just put your mind to to the work." And you know it's funny because I find myself saying the same thing to my older son, who's now a tenth grader. Um, because he'll get you know he'll he'll get focused on something that he wants to achieve and want to talk about it, and I'll talk about it with him, but then afterwards I'll say, no, let's just get to work
2: <laughs> wow so it it's it's pretty good if you've been able to train yourself to to sort of um uh d- dampen the angst and just get 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 the work done, but I can see how that's uh, really adaptive,
0: yeah, so my father also used to say. Genius uh, success is like one percent inspiration, or genius is one percent inspiration and ninety nine percent perspiration. And I actually thought that came from him. I didn't realize till <laughs> later <laughs> that it was Thomas Edison. But, right. uh, but he, you know, he those are the things I always remember, and I find myself saying them back to my sons today. So
1: yeah, yeah. I, I, isn't it funny how you like hear yourself being your parents, and like sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's terrifying. The TV
2: commercial like that, which of <laughs> course resonates. <laughs>
1: So what did you think you were going to be when you grew up, given all that freedom and support?
0: Oh, I, I, I had many different careers. I, When I was 12, I was going to be a ballet dancer. In fact, I was in a really rigorous ballet program. Uh, and one of my friends in that program went on to the American Ballet Company. and so, uh, But I quickly realized that uh, I didn't have the body type to be professional. And so once I realized I couldn't be professional, I, I dropped quickly.
2: That's how we reached the same decision, Lisa. Is... <laughs>
1: I'm still waiting to figure out which body type I apply to,
0: <laughs> career-wise. Yeah, and then I thought I wanted to be a doctor. My um, my dad's brother was uh, a great neurosurgeon, and I you know had a lot of exposure to him. And, and so my dad actually had a great idea during college for me to volunteer at Mass General Hospital in the ER, which I did. And when I saw what happened in the ER, I realized that I really wanted to solve systematic problems. And I wanted to be in a place where I could look at the whole system. And so I didn't want to be an actual practicing doctor. I was interested in it. But then I went into to um, get a, a BA and an MA in economics.
2: That's so funny. That's so similar, actually, to Bob Kocher's um, trajectory. It's really fascinating. Um, you know, sort of he, he was involved with stuff. I mean, he, you know, he obviously trained in medicine, but he, he, was, he was in the middle of, I think it takes a certain mindset to look at the problem and have the perspective, no, the interesting thing isn't the molecular biology of it all necessarily.
1: But like understanding how all the parts fit together. How in the heck of all those things did you get to economics? What drew you to economics?
0: Well, I, I did really well in, uh, in those classes. And, you know, my mom was a professor. And so I, I think, you know, I was encouraged quickly at school uh, to get on a track to be a Ph.D., and that's why I did the BA and the MA at the same time.
2: And then you were going to work in policy, right? I mean, your first job was... Right.
0: And I really, I, yeah, I really thought I wanted to go into, so I thought I was a systems level thinker. And I thought, okay, I'll go to Washington and try to have an impact. And I, I ended up earning um, the Presidential Management Intern Program in DC. That was my first job out of college. And it was this prestigious program where graduates, uh, various master's degrees, you know, the Woodrow Wilson School, Ken, the Harvard Kennedy School. These are the kinds of people that went into policy. And I I ended up, I, I spoke Japanese, and so I went up and I had economics background. So I went to work for Secretary Brady and Carla Hills at the Treasury Department and worked on Japan-U.S. trade negotiations. And about nine months into this program, I, I felt like I was really, you know, really frustrated and beating my head against a wall, frankly. I mean, we were negotiating with the Japanese on land tariffs and taxes, and it was it was complicated and it was really slow moving. And I thought to myself, this is this is too slow for me. Um, I'm not I'm not able to have the impact that I thought I was going to have.
2: Yeah. So so you you started off in in banking, and um uh, and you said you were you, because you applied for the job and they took you.
0: <laughs> 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 I applied and I. I actually loved it. I mean, I worked a hundred hours w- a week, and I got exposure to. Well, I guess
1: you worried very little then.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but that's all. I mean, I think that's kind of diagnostic of something. I mean, maybe we'll get one of those ER docs in here for that diagnosis. No, but really, but I, mean, I think it really does. I thought it actually said a huge amount about, like, you know, sort of what you like to do because it's grueling. I mean, like, you know, you've always you know, what you've always discussed. It is. Oh, worked a hundred hours a week, and I was so immersed in the job. But that's that's grueling. I mean, and and what you're doing, at least at the initial level, isn't isn't you know you're not rainmaking, right? I mean, you're like uh you know you know making all these pitch books, right?
0: Well, you know, I actually I was lucky. I was a twenty-something year old, and I um, there was no one between me and the uh you know the the investment banker that was actually doing the deals. Oh wow! So I I ended up. You know we took a o l public powersoft e uh, c i telecom i mean i I ended up meeting the management teams of these companies and traveling with them. I went on the road shows. I really had full exposure, and once I got in uh and and spent a lot of time with the companies and the management teams, I realized I actually wanted to be like like my father in many ways an entrepreneur and be on the other side of the investment banking process and really be building and creating because it's this crazy
2: thing where so you did this you like you think you had this really heady experience doing all of these you know sort of ipos on on the banking side you were offered a friggin partner role at, a, at an investment banking company which is sort of like winning the game you know done um and instead you're like yeah i think i'll go to business school is that right
0: well i wasn't that simple i actually was very conflicted i loved uh i loved the work i loved the people and i was honored i felt honored to be able to uh to get a partner track job without an mba so i actually really took it very seriously and considered it incredibly hard uh and actually it was my father once again who said to me you know stephanie when you're 40 will you regret not going to get an mba because i had i had gotten into the mba programs and um I knew, in my heart of hearts, I didn't want to be a banker, and I wanted to to build. And so I just took the plunge uh, and went and I, and actually, in my applications, I wrote that I wanted to be either a tech or healthcare entrepreneur. I was very clear on what I wanted at that point. Uh, and so I just went to business school.
1: So you ended up straight into the kind of the combination of those two things, right? Your first company that you worked at was Planet Rx, I think.
0: Yes, I started Planet RX, and it's it's hard to believe, but we went public in 1999 uh, with a 40 million dollar run rate, which is just crazy. You would never do that today. I mean, Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch took us public, and then we merged with Drugstore. You know, but at the time, you know, in 1999, we were both trading near two billion dollar market caps, and then we were merged and sold to Walmart for like 429 million.
1: So. We're kind of like in that same mode today, right? Companies with 40 million or 4 million of revenue trading for 2 billion. What do you think? Are you looking at this as a, um, like, is this canary in the coal mine all over again for you? Or are you thinking we're, you know, is it have any sort of recollection of what you're seeing today in the
0: market? I think it's very different today. What I'm seeing is a lot of late stage venture capital, growth capital, uh, private equity capital that is sustaining companies. For a long time before they go public, Mm. and giving them the opportunity to to really scale and hone their models, Uh, so I I see it as quite different. Uh, And you know, there's there's a lot more understanding of how to build a legacy company today than there was. I mean, the 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 late '90s were just a bit crazy, and there was a lot of capital being put into uh, early early proof points. Uh, Whereas today, I think there's an, an expectation that takes 10 years to build a, a great company.
2: It's, it's interesting because while your first exposure, I guess you founded um, uh, Planet Rx, um, you're, you really kind of got it um, from there. You, you had uh, pretty intensive leadership experiences at sort of leading tech companies, um, both eBay and Google. Can you tell us a little bit about that evolution and what you did there?
0: Yes, I I really enjoyed uh both eBay and Google. I was fortunate to work with amazing talent. I um uh, I I really was like an entrepreneur. I uh, I took on some really hard projects early on at at eBay and then eventually ran uh, a lot of PayPal and then and then I was SVP at ebay.com. Um and I had many different roles throughout my experience there and was uh you know, was was at first I was an international, and then I was eBay motors, and then I was at PayPal for nearly five years and really built all the uh the payment stack that is uh essentially taking the public the company public today. In fact, I you know, when I look back, when we first acquired PayPal, we paid a billion six and most of the volume was on eBay. There really was no tech stack off eBay. And uh, they said, the board said, well, only 10% of commerce is on eBay and the 90% needs PayPal as well. And so let's find an entrepreneur in the company to go build this. And so I went and, uh, you know, from zero to about four and a half years later, it became a multi, um, multi multi-billion dollar business. And we had a, you know, a global franchise where we really knew we could scale something even bigger than eBay. And I remember pitching Meg Whitman at the time, a CEO, and Rajiv Dutta, the CFO, probably forty times wow. to convince them to invest in PayPal because you know PayPal was a merchant services payments business that was regulated, and eBay had eighty-five percent gross margins, and PayPal had forty-five percent gross <laughs> right. margins. Right. But but we all knew in. You know, at the end of the day, that PayPal could be bigger than eBay someday. It seemed very remote at that time, but it has it has borne out to be true.
1: And what was your um, most interesting Google experience? What did you work on there that was really cool?
0: Well, at Google, they uh, they recruited me to go after commerce and payments because they feared that Amazon was disrupting uh, the. You know, essentially, people were going to Amazon to search for products as opposed to Google. And so I built um many different products there, but you know, really honed the shopping experience on Google itself and optimized the Google shopping experience and then built Google Wallet, uh, and Android essentially Android Pay Google Wallet, and then Google Shopping Express. And so so the idea was that you could find any product on eBay, uh, order it immediately and pay for it immediately, and then have it shipped to you within thirty to 30, 30 minutes hmm.
1: to an hour. So I'm curious, you know, you started Planner X, you know, very small, obviously. You were at eBay when it was small um, and then watched it grow and at Google when it was probably very large. How, how do these companies change as they grow? You know, as Planner X went from small to massive, as eBay went from small to massive, you know, PayPal it went from small to massive. What is the experience for somebody like you leading that process?
0: Well, Many of these companies, uh, Google and eBay are pretty entrepreneurial. So if you're doing something new, like in the case uh, at at Google, I was doing something new. uh, There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of belief in building new businesses there. So and so it it didn't feel like it wasn't entrepreneurial. Um, I was able to recruit engineers from uh, the R&D labs and different parts of Google and then bring together a team. I also inherited a team, but it was, there was tremendous support to build new things. Uh, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't feel like it was a, you know, a large,
1: but isn't that in and of itself different than being like truly an entrepreneur, having all that support and resource available to you. Yes.
0: <laughs> yes. Yes. So I would say there is a stark difference between that, uh, intrapreneurial experience and my own entrepreneurial experience yeah. where, um, you know, you're making your own well, copies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I make my own copies, and I have to be the janitor and the uh, and the CEO all at the same time. Uh, yeah, no, it's quite different. In fact, even though I I had to pitch forty times against the early PayPal Merchant Services funded, it, it's still a relatively safe environment that's supporting taking risk and growing new businesses. Whereas in the entrepreneurial world, you're pitching your company and yourself without all the resources and, uh, and you have to be able to go high and go low and really tackle everything all at once. And you, you know, there's an expression that Reed Hoffman has that I love and he's like, you have a thousand fires burning and you have to figure out which ones are the the, the hottest right now to deal with. And it's so true. You really have to, you have to be ruthless about prioritization and fixing the things that matter most and letting everything else. Well.
2: I can also imagine it's a different experience um, being an intrapreneur at um, uh at, at Google versus at, at, at some other companies where the the available resources to do what you want to do may uh may differ what do you think is a personal skill that you bring that allows you to be a successful leader
0: uh, I'm a systems level thinker and I step back and look at disruption at, at the center and try to figure out how to solve problems uh, and then how to put resources against it i don't I don't actually uh, think in terms of resources first. I think about the system and the problem and how do you <clears throat> how do you build something scalable? And then I apply um, and then I apply behind that, okay, what do you need to actually believe that this can happen? Uh, so' I don't, I don't get bogged down by the can'ts like you know the won'ts or the can'ts. Uh, I tend to be pretty open-minded. And I was fortunate you know to work in some very successful companies where I saw people take a lot of risks. I'm ne- I've never been risk averse, uh, and and take smart, calculated risk, and really map it out, and know uh, the end state that you're you're going to reach. And you know, you really have to have like a ten year vision, but you also have to have a a six 6- to twelve month vision.
2: Wow! And then you know, on the entrepreneur versus entrepreneur topic, um, I know that um you're familiar with um we recently interviewed Marcus um, uh, Marcus Osborne.
0: I loved that interview. That was great. Yeah. But
2: the, um and but then you you had some um. I I think, perspective on on his take on um, which of the two is more difficult?
0: Well, he thought, (laughs) I think he thought uh, entrepreneurship was more difficult. Well, I think
1: he thought entrepreneurship was more good. Good. That you're building off a platform, a big platform, and that gives you a lot more opportunity than starting, you know, from a small base.
0: Yes, that that is true. And I actually, I agree with him on that that front. I, I would say that uh, you have to be in the right company, though. So, for example, I think I think he's in Walmart, and Walmart, I, I suspect, uh, given there 180 million people that shop there weekly, and you know the, the, what they can do in healthcare, I think they see that vision. You you need, I guess, it gets to your earlier point, David. You need leaders that are willing to think big. There are there are quite a few Fortune 500 companies where it would be hard to innovate inside that company, and and it would be faster to to build a nimble team outside of that company and and and, and test new ideas. There's a lot of people that can say no to you inside uh, large companies.
2: Right. So despite all of the um, opportunities at, at Google as an entrepreneur and and you know great leadership experiences there, you sort of left the comfort of all of that behind. And pursued what you've described as intra- you said entrepreneurship is way harder, and you nevertheless went for it and uh, decided to lead this company called Vita Health. So could you tell us about that decision and what you're trying to accomplish at Vita?
0: Sure. Well, I started Vita for very for very professional and personal reasons. So I I've been tinkering with, yeah, um, I, I, I've had a passion for healthcare since the Planet Rx days. In fact. I've been ruminating on a lot of the issues we are facing with chronic care since then. Uh and in in 2009 my my father was quite sick. He had uh multiple chronic conditions, uh, obesity, diabetes, uh COPD, CHF and my, you know, my brother my brothers and I really just struggled to we watched the system fail him and I just said I couldn't sit back anymore and watch uh chronic care not only hurt my own family but our our nation at large i mean we are living on borrowed time we're spending nearly 20% of our money our gdp on healthcare and much of it is on chronic care and we're we're handling it all wrong so i i really stepped back and thought to myself you know i can apply my experience uh building consumer platforms and and great consumer products and apply it to healthcare so
2: what do you guys deliver
0: so we uh we we offer a solution where consumers can manage their chronic conditions. We cover both physical and mental health conditions. Uh, we give people devices and digital therapeutic programs inside an app, uh, also connected with a coach or a therapist. And we've seen people reverse their diabetes, their hypertension, uh, their depression. Uh, They've gone off their CPAP for sleep apnea. They've pretty much transformed their lives. And there's just some some amazing stories. And they've saved lots of money on their own, you know, their own uh, dollars on an annual basis in terms of what they're spending on scripts, but also the healthcare system itself.
1: So what's the secret there? Because I think in most of the programs that have been tried, for many of the programs that have been tried, the the ability to get the consumer to engage long term has been you know virtually zero. That they revert to the mean eventually, and sometimes don't even start. Um, and even when fully knowing that their decision may be you know dangerous to their health, they they are so reluctant. People are so reluctant often to engage and change their lives. What is the thing you've done differently, or that you've learned differently that that makes it work in your system?
0: Well, I think historically the way that uh, the industry has approached chronic disease has uh, been challenging in the sense that there's terms in the industry called like disease management and telephonic coaching you know, and these kinds of examples where people would call your home at seven o'clock at night when you're having dinner with your family, and there wasn't a consistent relationship or a data-driven approach. and so we're we're just essentially taking mobile and cloud and social and all the new uh, off the technologies that are available and combining that in a way that is really compelling. so you know even even people who are uh, Medicare customers who may be older are very comfortable chatting with their coach or video, you know, video telemedicine is now very accepted. It's very much like FaceTime, you know, with your grandkids. And so we're, we're putting everything in one place and we're giving you the devices, we're giving you the, the integrated Program and the experience, and then someone holding you accountable, and the group is holding you accountable. So this
2: sounds like very much the thinking around this sort of approach to what I guess you would want to call tech-enabled services, where you use tech, but the focus is really on the individual connection. You know, similar to it strikes me at a high level to what folks like Omada or or Verta are doing. Do you see them as sort of examples of this, and how do you think those uh, efforts have gone and are, are are yours in this is your efforts in the same mode
0: yes i i think that there is uh you know, there is a a new industry emerging called digital therapeutics and i would say that we're all uh all of those all of them and us are in that category if you will and uh i you know there's some research that's been written about this market it's expected to be about uh, a nine and a half ten billion dollar market by 2025 And I think what you're going to see is digital therapeutics will be part of the fabric of healthcare. They'll be bundled, uh, they'll be prescribed, they'll be part of healthcare, part of the formulary. And the reason for that is you're seeing real outcomes. And the, the ongoing continuous care model does work.
2: One of the things that I I think that you just have nailed is, you know, you've always emphasized the centrality of the human connection. I I think that's absolutely the secret of healthcare and what has eluded so many of the initial tech folks. You you know, the the really, the, the, the emotion and the human connection. But a question that I want always comes up is, can you both sort of personalize enough to deliver this and then also scale?
0: That is the $100 million question, right?
2: Or ten billion, as someone wise once told me.
0: Yeah. Uh, yes, and, and fortunately, uh, you know this is where technology and uh, humans together, I think, end up building an outcome that is scalable. Uh, so, if you were you look at machine learning and AI, and the combination of what you're able to do with a cloud-based service, with uh, you can you can actually scale a lot of what Approach does today. So, when we think about the system. We look at the doctors having seven minutes on average with a patient, and not being able to do what nurses or coaches do, uh, and they and and they don't they don't want to. And so we look at a system where doctors are able to practice at the top of their license, and coaches and nurses and therapists do the rest. And then the AIs uh, and the bots and the machine learning. Also help the coaches and therapists scale. so you you do end up having a scalable system over time.
1: So you once said that uh, healthcare is a giant hairball of perverse incentives, and yeah. as a dual cat owner, I can fully appreciate the concept. Um, what did you mean by that exactly?
0: Well, uh, you know i have I always am trying to to break down everything that I uncover in healthcare and really understand how it was built the way it was because, some of the decisions that were made seem shocking. Uh, <laughs>
2: and,
0: you know, the, the, you know, the incentives for consumers to behave uh, and to manage their conditions are just not there. There's no, there's very little alignment between the consumer, the payer, the employer. Yeah. I heard and something it, about that. It doesn't that. really make <laughs> sense. And so it is kind of this, and, and when you poke and you prod and you look at how the PBMs are structured, or you look at how the insurers have made uh coding decisions or you start to poke and prod it it just feels like this giant <laughs> airball
2: But do you still feel confident enough that by delivering the results and the outcomes that you're anticipating with your um program you'll be able to get paid for it
0: Yes there are codes that we map to and so so one of the things you you know you do have to understand the existing system and what's supported in terms of payment models and then you need to look at well where are these payment models moving And, you know, you're seeing changes in the system. So, for example, Medicare is reimbursing for DPP and and CCM, chronic care management. So you're starting to see, and there's also value-based bundles. So... These, these there are lots of shifts and you need to understand the current system and how to play in it, but then also where it's headed.
2: Yeah, because I mean, I think that there's so many people who've sort of built some a system assuming that there's going to be value-based care and that's always been a little further in the future than some folks had uh, imagined. So I know we're running out of time, but there's a topic we got to talk about because I thought it was just a, a captivating aspect mm-hmm. of your healthy dose interview. The host asked you what, um, about what, about you know, thinking about what you've been through a tech what has been your experience at the tech companies? Expecting, I think, that you might have had a difficult experience at a woman, as a woman at these tech companies.
1: Particularly at Google, which has had its own share of issues.
2: Often, yeah, yeah, often associated with a bro culture. And I think that you surprised um, our friends there by saying that in these roles at Google and at eBay, you said, quote, I never thought about being a woman. I just did my job. End quote. You noted that at Google in, that Google in particular was, quote, phenomenally supportive of women, end quote. And you also said, quote, I always thought corporate America was supportive of women, end quote. This isn't the impression of corporate America in general or Silicon Valley in particular that so many outsiders have. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, how do you account for the difference between the conventional wisdom and your lived experience?
0: Well, I think I represent a lot of senior women at Google who, who had an amazing, or, or at eBay, who, you know, I feel very fortunate to have worked for those companies. And I, I did feel very supported. Uh, and I never really focused on barriers. I just kept my head down and kept working and, and, and getting results and then was rewarded for those results. And I honestly saw that time and time again. It was not just me. Um, women were encouraged to take a seat at the table, share their opinion, take a stand, take leadership jobs. Uh, I do think that those companies are are unique uh, in, in that they're pretty progressive uh, and uh, fast-paced. And, uh, and so I, I do feel lucky to have experienced that. I would say that when I got out of uh, those experiences and was raising money and watching the entrepreneurial and VC world, I realized there was a significant difference. Uh, and if you just look at the data, there's only two, 2.6% of VC-funded companies that have a female CEO. And only seven percent of v c s have female partners, so I do think there is a gap and and i i 've started to really crystallize in my mind what I think the gap is i I, I believe that in large companies that are fast paced with Uh, a lot of technology innovation like eBay and Google, there is a meritocracy or more, at least more of a meritocracy than traditional environments. And so if you perform, then, you know, you you can move up and take on more responsibility. Whereas I think the entrepreneurial VC world is a bit more complicated and there's a ton of research by um, Catalyst and McKinsey on how women are typically evaluated based on results and men are Uh, you know, people believe in in the promise. And so when you think about women raising venture capital, they're evaluated on what they've achieved at that moment when they're presenting to a venture capitalist, whereas a male might be given a lot more credit for the promise of what he's pitching. And so I think that's where there is a gap uh, and it is harder for women to raise money. Uh, And I I also think women in general... um, don't know how or haven't had as much experience to pitch a big vision, and so what you're seeing with All Rise and a lot of the initiatives in the Valley to help women entrepreneurs is fantastic. And I think it's changing. I mean, my investors, uh, you know, are really strong female VCs who have incredible track records, who've raised a lot of capital. Do you think it's
1: so? Yeah, it's you know, I know some of the statistics you're citing are absolutely correct, although I don't think frankly, the, the the outcomes in big corporate America are that different. I think 4% of Fortune 500 companies' CEOs are women. So it's not that much better than small companies. Um, and we've certainly seen, you know, drama on the sexual harassment front and all that in big and small companies and the like. But do you, you know, what? it's interesting that your backers are women. Do you think only women can back women-run companies at this moment? I mean, do you think it will it is changing or on its way to changing?
0: I think it's changing. Uh, I think it's uh, it is there's a lot of uh, like if you look at Stitch Fix and there's a lot of female CEOs that are setting the trend uh, and setting new examples and so people believe more and more that it's possible. Uh, I do think sometimes it's hard to raise capital for something that seems like a female problem, right? So you know females are essentially the chief purchasing officer in the household; they buy like 80% of the items, but when they, you know, if they pitch a makeup company or a commerce company or a clothing company, it's not as interesting typically to a male uh, investor. So there is, there is a gap there, but it's changing. And there's a lot of women now in venture capital raising their own funds, and also, and many of the firms are adding a female partner if they haven't already. There's, I, I think, in the last year, almost all the big firms have added a female partner, which has been a huge shift.
1: Yeah, it is a shift, and we'll see how it plays out. It'll be interesting to to learn. If in the end those people end up with the investing power of the other colleagues or not?
2: So just to ask you about that one, once a, just not to push on a little bit more, but you know, um, I remember when a lot of this stuff came up at um, uh, you know with the the allegations at Kleiner, um, which I'm not asking you about. Somebody um, wrote a, a, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying, no, there you, you couldn't have more of a meritocracy than VC than investors, and that. They couldn't be racist, sexist, whatever it is, because they're too driven by their LPS want returns, and whatever delivers returns, that's what they're going to do. But you know, implicitly, you're I mean, there are many reasons why that's not necessarily the case, and I, I've written about some of them um, uh, in terms of the you know that sometimes the value of diversity takes longer to a pre, to sort of to accrue, and if people, whereas uh, more homogeneous organizations reach. Faster decisions, but not necessarily also, better.
1: People don't always act in their logical best interests. But, yeah,
2: but but I want to I want to ask Stephanie, what, what is your sort of when you read an op-ed, you know, published op-ed like that that says VCs are a meritocracy, and then you're sort of using them as a counterexample to meritocracies. How, how, what's your th- help elaborate your thinking? Oh, that's
0: there. that's a good question. I would say over a ten-year timeline, VCs are a meritocracy. Uh, however, LPs. So, LPS only look at returns, and they're not they're not asking for diversity. They're not asking for female partners. they may they may now in the last year, but they haven't historically. But the challenge is that it's a meritocracy over a decade, right? So an average fund is is ten years old, ten years long. And when you first have female partners join a fund, their credibility is tied to their sourcing of deals, their networking, who they know, how they uh, interact with the partners. And these are very small partnerships that are like marriages, right? And it's based on very tight-knit relationships. And it's not it's not as easy to perform. So when you, when you go into a Fortune 500 company and you're given a project and you can deliver on it and there's a clear hi- hierarchy uh, uh, and a process for HR for evaluation and a meritocracy for how people are treated, it's very different than in a venture capital environment where you know, you're sort of asking, well, who sourced the deal? And does this person have the great relationship with the CEO? And who's the best person to manage the CEO, or be on the board? It's, it, you know, so I think it takes time for women to prove themselves in BC. And because it takes so long, it's harder.
2: That's so, so interesting. Well, so Stephanie, I'm so glad we're able to talk about this, to talk about your journey, that you're able to share your um, uh, experiences. It's um, just one of the most inspirational people that I know, and most thoughtful, and um, we are we're, um, uh, just feel so privileged to have you on our program. Thanks
0: so much, Stephanie. Thank you. It was great chatting with you. Have a great day.
2: All right. So that was fascinating at every level. I mean, and again, actually, you know, it's funny on our podcast to be promoting healthy um, healthy dose, but her interview there was fascinating. The areas that she expanded upon here were really, really interesting. Um, I was looking at you, Lisa, while we were talking <laughs> about the uh, extent to which VCs are, are meritocracies, and you know her view is that you know they, in the long run, you know you were able to sort of see more of the value, in, and there are meritocracies in the long run, you know over a 10-year time frame, and you had a skeptical look in your face.
1: I don't, I don't agree with it. I think that that venture funds um, have the brand matters for venture funds there's LPs that follow venture funds because of the brand name of them even when they've had multiple funds that aren't very good there's partners at venture funds that never really do perform well and get to stay I mean, because these these are like marriages once you're in you're it's hard to get out you know it's hard <laughs> to get rid of somebody um, and so I, I actually don't believe it at all I think the 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 best functioning venture funds are functioning well in terms of diversity, because they have high functioning people, you know, and they really care about these things. And I do agree that the advent of more women starting their own funds is shaking things up. I just hope that we get to a place where in the end, and I know this is super Pollyannish, that people, you know, look at quality of people, quality of ideas without regard to gender. But at this point in time, it's uh, very poor.
2: Wow. Well, that, that's certainly encouraging. In case it's not sufficiently um, uh, skeptical, um, I, uh, I had a sense you had a, a measure of skepticism about the state of um, uh, meritocracy in corporate America. Do you, you want to well, say I anything don't think, about that? I just that? don't
1: think fundamentally it's that different. I think there's great people who are encouraging and there's not great people who are discouraging you know, if you look at big companies like Google, you find people like Stephanie who had an amazing experience, right? But we also saw a lot of press from Google that wasn't so great about treatment of women um, in other parts of the organization. So I think, you know, big organizations, I think you can find both. I mean, you look at, you know, places like NBC, you know, or Fox or even Amazon and Uber who had, you know, tough uh, Me Too years in lots of different ways. And, you Um, There are also people I know at all those organizations who had fabulous experiences. So I think in the end, it comes down to leadership.
2: All right. Well, thank you. Um, Remember to rate us on iTunes, leave a comment, help others discover the show. You can um, follow Lisa Sunan at com, And you can follow David's writing at Forbes. (laughs) We are grateful to our sponsor, Idea Pharma the industry's leading path-to-market strategy practice, bringing more great medicines to patients. You can find them at www.ideapharma.com.
1: Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Studio B in Mill Valley, California. Have a great day. Take care.